Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Chris Cornell, covering Patience, the Guns N' Roses song. We first heard that on July 20th, 2020, the day that would have been Chris's 56th birthday. And then it was included on a posthumous album of cover versions released on December 11th of that year. It was called No One Sings Like You Anymore, Volume 1, which you may recognize as a line from the Soundgarden song Black Hole Sun. It collected Chris singing material by Janis Joplin and John Lennon, Yellow, Prince, and more. He loved playing covers. Chris had been working on these recordings for a couple of years and had been planning to release it as a solo project, but of course, he never got to see that happen. When it did come out, it was during the bad days of the pandemic. And hearing these songs, knowing that Chris was no longer with us, kind of added to the mood of the whole world at that time. If you knew about that album at all, because it kind of snuck in under the radar just before Christmas when things were pretty bleak and everybody was in lockdown. So if that record escaped your attention, you're forgiven. We had other things going on. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and because Chris is still very much part of the rock scene, those songs from Soundgarden and Audioslave are not going away anytime soon, I thought it was time to look back at his career and highlight 10 things that were special about the man and or things that you might not have known about Chris. This also gives us an excuse to play some songs from Chris's career. So we'll count that posthumous record as interesting item number one. So let's move on to interesting thing number two. He got some very early breaks in the music business because he worked in a kitchen. In the very early 80s, long before Soundgarden was a thing, Chris worked at a Seattle restaurant called Ray's Boathouse. He started as a teenager when his older brother Peter got him a job. He worked his way up from dishwasher and eventually worked his way to busboy and then sous chef. Outside of work, he was messing around with music, specifically playing drums. Peter Cornell introduced another dishwasher to Chris, and the two of them started jamming. And that's when Chris first started to sing. He would have been around 17 at the time. At the annual staff Christmas party, a two-man band was hired for entertainment. And at some point in the evening, Chris got up from his table, grabbed the mic, and launched into a spontaneous version of Twist and Shout. And nobody had heard him before, and nobody could believe the power of this kid's voice. Chris was in a cover band called The Shimps, and they played the occasional gig around the city. That group included bass player Hiro Yamamoto. And a little later, Soundgarden came together with a maintenance worker from the restaurant named Scott Sundquist on drums, who would later be replaced, of course, by Matt Cameron. So then, Chris, Hiro, and Scott were joined by guitarist Kim Thale. And that would be the original lineup of Soundgarden from 1984. And then, in 1985, that version of Soundgarden made their first recordings. Three of them appeared on a compilation entitled Deep Six, issued by a local label called CZ Records. There's a track called Heretic. Item number three about Chris. He was a foodie. Now, that's probably not much of a surprise. Chris did work his way up to sous chef at Ray's Boathouse, before moving on to the Rain City Grill, also a Seattle restaurant. Somewhere in between, he worked as a fish handler for a seafood warehouse. He liked the vibe of high-end dining so much that he dreamed of opening his own place one day. And not long after, Soundgarden began to take off, and that became his full-time job. But working in restaurants instilled a love of cooking and food in Chris. In 2006, 
he opened a high-end restaurant in Paris called Black Calvados. This was just across from the Four Seasons Hotel and about five blocks from the Champs-Élysées. Years ago, it had been a hangout for celebrities visiting the cities. During renovations, they discovered a ceiling fresco that dated back to the 1780s. Cool place. The new restaurant was a joint venture with his wife, Vicky, and his brother-in-law, Nicholas, who also went by the name DJ Nick Blast. Both he and Vicky were raised in restaurant families, so it kind of made sense for the three of them to get into the restaurant business. And Chris called this a restaurant-slash-bar where you could go in Paris to hear rock music. The menu was interesting. Caramelized quail, peanut butter sole, truffled mac and cheese, and even gourmet hot dogs. The interior was very black, designed by a guy who came up with the annual Victoria's Secret Fashion Show. And the place was very popular for a while, sometimes not closing until 7 in the morning. Sounds like a great place, but unfortunately it did not last, and it closed after a couple of years. But that's the restaurant business. Let's play something. In 1991, Soundgarden released an album that became one-third of the holy trinity of grunge records. The first was Pearl Jam's 10, released on August 27, 1991. Then a month later, it was Nirvana's Nevermind. And finally, on October 8th, it was Soundgarden's Bad Motorfinger. One of the most popular songs from that record was Rusty Cage. But have you ever heard this studio outtake version? Moving on to Chris Cornell, item number four. Early in the 1990s, director Cameron Crowe wrote a script for a movie he called Singles. It was set in Seattle and featured a bunch of Gen X characters trying to find their place in the world. Crowe cast a bunch of local musicians. Eddie Vedder, Jeff Amont, and Stone Gossard show up as members of a fictional band called Citizen Dick. Allison Chains appears performing in a club. And at one point in the film, this is where Matt Dillon is showing Bridget Fonda the new stereo he installed in her car, Chris Cornell walks up to see what's going on. He doesn't say anything, but the very next shot is of Chris and Soundgarden on stage. Now, back to Stone for a second. When he was trying to come up with names for this fictional band with Matt Dillon, he wrote down Spoonman. After the movie wrapped, Chris took that list and used the discarded band names that Stone had written down for song titles that he was going to write for Soundgarden, and he began writing material for the soundtrack. Here is the version of Spoonman Soundgarden wrote and recorded for singles. Only a very short snippet makes the film, and it wasn't until 2017 that the full original version was released. It's a bit different from the one you may know. Here it is. Back with more of our list of 10 interesting things about Chris Cornell in just a sec. We're looking at 10 random things from the life and career of Chris Cornell. Item number five has to do with his lifelong struggles with mental health, drugs, and alcohol. Chris was a loner growing up, one of six kids raised by a single mother who was an alcoholic. His estranged father was an alcoholic too. Chris grew very quiet and anxious. His best moment came when he discovered a box of Beatles records at a neighbor's place and rock music became the way he dealt with how he was feeling. At 12, he was drinking, smoking up, and sneaking prescription meds. He quit for a while, but tried PCP at 14 and had a very bad experience, which left him even more depressed and anxious. He quit only to start drinking and smoking up again at 15. 
The anxiety, the depression, and the panic attacks followed him for years. Let me read you something from a 1996 interview when he opened up about depression. This is Chris speaking. No one really knows what run-of-the-mill depression is. You'll think that someone has run-of-the-mill depression, and then the next thing you know, they're hanging from a rope. It's hard to tell the difference, but I do feel that depression can be useful. Sometimes it's just chemical. It doesn't seem to come from anywhere. And whenever I've been in any kind of depression, I've over the years tried not to only imagine what it feels like not to be there, but to try to remind myself that I could just wake up the next day and it could be gone because that happens and, you know, not to worry about it. At the same time, when I'm feeling great, I remember the depression and think about the differences in what I'm feeling and why I would feel that way and not be reactionary one way or the other. You have to realize that these are patterns of life and you just go through them. Chris was able to manage things throughout Soundgarden's existence, but when they broke up in 1997, the same time his marriage was failing, he went big into drugs, including heroin and oxy. He finally checked into rehab in 2002, and by 2005, he was entirely sober, except for the prescription drugs. We'll get to that at the end. Remember how I said that box of Beatles records got Chris into rock? Much later, Soundgarden would cover the band. Interesting Chris Cornell item number six. He was almost killed in a car accident when he was recording his second solo album. On October 24, 2006, he was riding his motorcycle through the Studio City area of Los Angeles when he collided with a truck. Now, details are sketchy. Most reports say that he was rear-ended by this truck, but others say it was a front-end collision. Whatever happened, the collision knocked him 20 feet in the air and completely destroyed his $50,000 bike, a really nice custom chopper. But Chris was able to dust himself off and return to the studio later that day to continue working on the record. He had lots of cuts and bruises, but, you know, given what could have happened to him. That second album included this song, which he recorded for Casino Royale, the film that introduced Daniel Craig as the new James Bond. Interesting Chris Cornell item number seven has to do with the bold but ultimately doom change in direction with this third solo album. He teamed up with rapper and producer Timbaland to record an album that, well, confused fans and friends. Gone were the guitars and rock sounds, and in were beats created by Timbaland. Out was the heavy rock, and in was more of a pop, kind of hip-hop approach. At first, people were curious, and the album debuted at number 10 on the charts. But then the following week, it dropped 55 spots, making it one of the biggest falls from the top 10 in chart history. Reviews were, um, well, we'll say that they were mixed, just to put it kindly. Even Trent Reznor felt he had to say something, quoted as saying that Chris had embarrassed himself. The title track was one of the singles. Now, let's have a listen to see if things have improved with age.
Okay, in all honesty, that, that actually sounds better than what I remember. Maybe I need to go back and listen to the whole thing. Three more interesting facts about Chris Cornell to go. They're all coming up in seconds. Here are a couple more interesting things about Chris Cornell. This is item number eight, and it has to do with why Soundgarden broke up in 1997. At the time, Chris was married to a woman named Susan Silver. This was an issue because not only was she the manager of Alice in Chains and Screaming Trees, she was also the manager of Soundgarden, and she was married to the lead singer. So uh, no conflict of interest there. That relationship added to all kinds of tension within the band, and it was so bad that it was reported that each member took their own bus or plane when traveling between gigs. After the band broke up, Chris and Susan stayed together for another five years before divorcing in 2002. It was not amicable. In 2006, when Chris was with Audioslave, he filed a complaint with the California Labor Commission alleging that Susan violated something called the Talent Agency Act when it came to booking gigs for Soundgarden. Cutting to the chase, Chris and the other members of Soundgarden claimed that Susan booked gigs for the band when she didn't have the right to. Something about a manager performing the work of an agent without a talent agent's license. I know, it's a bit weird. The suit also asked that Susan return any money she made in 2005 from anything involving Soundgarden. It was also alleged that Susan was spitefully retaining possession of Chris's music library and his Grammy Awards. Some guitars may have been involved too. Item number nine. And there's no way around it. We have to talk about the night Chris died. The facts are these. On May 17th, 2017, Chris went back to room 1136 at the MGM Grand Hotel in Detroit following a Soundgarden show. Out in Los Angeles, Chris's wife, Vicky, noticed that the lights in the house were flickering on and off. She knew that Chris had an app on his phone that allowed him to operate the lights of the house remotely no matter where he was. Why was he doing this now from his Detroit hotel room? It seemed odd. So she called him at 11.35 that night. This is 20 minutes after Chris stepped off stage. Martin Kirsten, his bodyguard, had been with him during that time. He fixed something on Chris's computer, gave him a couple of Ativan tablets, there's those prescription drugs I was talking about earlier, to help him come down from the show and sleep. Martin then went back to his room, which was just two doors down the hallway. Ativan, in case you don't know, is the brand name of lorazepam, an anti-anxiety drug for which Chris had a prescription. Chris was alone when Vicky called. Again, this is about 11.35. He spent some time on the phone with her, and she says he sounded groggy and anxious and slurring his words. Chris said he was fine. He was just really tired and that the Ativan was kicking in. The call ended, but Vicky was worried about Chris's state of mind. What happened with Chris over the next half hour is still unknown. Vicky called the bodyguard and asked him to check on Chris. He went back to room 1136 at around 12.15, but Chris's door was locked and no one was answering the knocks. He called hotel security for help from a house phone in the hallway, but they were no help, saying that because he wasn't registered to that room, they couldn't let him in for security reasons. Martin was so frustrated and concerned that he kicked in the door. Chris was nowhere to be found in the main part of the suite. Then Martin checked the bathroom. The door was locked. He kicked his way in and found Chris on the floor with blood running from his mouth and a red exercise band around his neck. He wasn't breathing. A hotel medic arrived at 12.56. An ambulance was summoned and arrived a few minutes later, but it was too late. At 1.30, 
Chris was pronounced dead. The official police report says the cause of death, suicide by hanging. About an hour and 15 minutes had elapsed since Kirsten was contacted by Vicky. Then the conspiracy theories kicked in as soon as the news came out. Why was there so much blood on the scene? It had to be foul play. Well, there was never any proof of that. Why did it take 41 minutes to get a medical team on the scene? Unknown. Vicky couldn't believe that this was a straight suicide. There had to be extenuating circumstances. She was on the phone literally minutes after Chris was declared dead with an insurance lawyer named Kirk Pasch. A toxicology report had determined that Chris did have the Ativan in his blood at the time of his death, along with unknown barbiturates and, interestingly, the anti-opioid drug Nalazone. What was that all about? The presence of that in his blood has never been explained. Nor was a head injury that was mentioned in two clinical reports, but not in the autopsy. Following the autopsy, Vicky released this statement. Many of us who know Chris well noticed that he wasn't himself during his final hours and that something was very off. We have learned from this report that several substances were found in his system. After so many years of sobriety, this moment of terrible judgment seems to have completely impaired and altered his state of mind. Something clearly went terribly wrong, and my children and I are heartbroken and are devastated that this moment can never be taken back. In 2018, Vicky filed a lawsuit against Dr. Robert Coblin, who had a practice in Beverly Hills. He was the guy who prescribed Chris the Ativan. The contention was that Chris, a former addict, should have never been prescribed the Ativan and other drugs in the first place, saying that the doctor gave dangerous, mind-altering, controlled substances to Chris Cornell, which impaired Mr. Cornell's cognition, clouded his judgment, and caused him to engage in dangerous, impulsive behaviors that he was unable to control, costing him his life. That lawsuit was settled out of court in May 2021, without the doctor admitting any negligence or wrongdoing. Ativan can have some side effects, and according to the Mayo Clinic, Thoughts or attempts at killing oneself is listed as a possible side effect. But that the incidence of this kind of thing, that kind of thinking, after taking Ativan, is not well known. Bottom line is that we'll never know what Chris was thinking over that crucial final 30 minutes that led to his death. Finally, item number 10. Vicki Cornell was involved in many, many lawsuits following her husband's death mostly with the three remaining members of Soundgarden. The first suit was filed by Vicky and involved two things. First, the rights to seven vocal tracks that Chris left behind on his laptop. These were demos recorded in early 2017 that appeared to be destined for a new Soundgarden album. She also sued over the disbursement of Soundgarden royalties. Soundgarden filed a countersuit, alleging that Mickey misappropriated proceeds from a 2019 tribute concert for personal means. I quote, Representation was false or exhibited recklessness and negligence as to the truth or falsity for the purpose and intent of inducing Soundgarden into agreeing to perform at the Cornell concert without compensation. Vicky shot back with a counter-countersuit, saying that Soundgarden did get paid and that their suit was salacious, scurrilous, and vicious. Things continued to get murky as both sides went to war over things like social media, Chris's posthumous participation in any band activities, for example, any new recordings or videos, and a ludicrously low buyout offer. Lawyers and accountants made a mint as each side called in professionals for legal advice, accounting, and auditing. 
There was a complaint filed in 2021 where Vicky said that she offered each of the three remaining members of Soundgarden a $4 million U.S. settlement for their interests in the band, which they refused. When the offer was up to $7 million, they still refused. There was also some dispute over the sharing of financial data that could be used to determine Chris's value to the partnership that was Soundgarden. Soundgarden replied, This dispute has never been about money or the band. This is their life's work and their legacy. But then, April 17th, 2023, a settlement was announced. The seven songs will be finished and released. Let's get one more song in here. This is Chris performing with Audio Slave as part of a live session for the BBC. One more bonus fact before we finish up. Chris Cornell died by hanging on May 18th, 2017. That was 37 years to the day that Joy Division singer Ian Curtis hanged himself in his kitchen. Two months after Chris died, July 20th, 2017, which would have been Chris's 53rd birthday, his close friend Chester Bennington of Lincoln Park died by suicide. Again, it was a hanging. Chris was cremated and his ashes interred at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Los Angeles. The tombstone reads, Voice of our generation and an artist for all time. He's right next to a cenotaph for Johnny Ramone, another friend. Chester Bennington's family had the option of placing his remains in a plot right next to Chris's, but they decided on another location. More music history and more music stories with the Ongoing History of New Music podcast. There are hundreds of them available through any podcast platform. They're all free and binging is encouraged. If you still want more, there's my website, which is updated with news and info every single day. You can find that at ajournalofmusicalthings.com. And you should also get the free daily newsletter. I mean, why not? I'm also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And if the spirit moves you, send me an email. The address is alan at alancross.ca. Technical production is by Rob Johnston. Talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.